You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. So last week, the question was asked, why don't we keep, essentially the question was, why don't we keep the ceremonial law? What's the deal with the ceremonial law? You will notice when we gather on Sunday mornings, nobody brings bulls and lambs and sheep and turtle doves. Can you imagine a fish with it? I mean, a, a bird with a shell on its back? That's just weird. And turtle doves and Peace, um, um, oh, what's the word? What's the, the measurement? There's a measurement, like a, an Ophra. That's the, <laughs> I'm having a brain lock. They used to measure wheat and, and uh, grain, and they would use those for offerings. Omar, that's Omar the tent maker. Yeah. Anyway, I'm going to leave that alone. Those things do not occur at Kootenai Community Church. And that is because of a, a reason that we're going to go through today. I'm, I decided to take part of the morning and look at the Old Testament law and the Christian. Jim asked the question last week. He didn't know what kind of a can of worms he, worms he was opening, but here they come. So the last week the question came up about how we make the decision regarding unclean foods in the Old Testament. So that question is actually one in a panoply of questions that occur to the Christian, Christian when dealing with Old Testament uh, regulations that are not that are not part of the moral law of God? The simple answer is that if it's a moral principle, it's still true today, whether it was uttered in Genesis or Galatians. Um, there are, however, there are, however, regulations that God imposed on the chosen people Israel for numerous reasons, including the setting apart of that nation as a special nation to himself for his sovereign purposes at the time. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. Talking to Israel now. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The, the Lord did not set his love on you or choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh the king. So... When God did that, he gave to Israel a series of ceremonial and judicial regulations that they were to keep. And there were different sanctions attached to those regulations. Some of them, if you didn't do them, you had to, have, you had to give an offering and, and repent and etc. Others, judicial regulations that if you violated them, you could be killed. Um, many of them. For example, and I think I talk about this later on too, but if you were an unruly son in those times a child of your father, and you were a disobedient, rebellious son, you could be stoned for that. That was a judicial regulation in Israel at the time. We don't do that anymore. <clears throat> Had that been a law today, I would have been dead years and years ago. And all the stones in the south part of town would have been in one big pile, and you would have wondered what that was. It would have been because of the gregarious nature of punishment at the time, where the neighbors gathered together to help in the punishment of me. Okay, that was, that was a funny. You missed it? Okay. Lots of people threw stones at me. Yeah. At any rate, that's not in, or, that's not in uh, effect today. 
That's one of the judicial laws of Israel. Um, a modern example of this can be found in state laws. For example, it's illegal to have a switchblade, an automatic knife, in the state of Washington. But you could, they're perfectly legal in Idaho. How many knew that? Wow. You're all going to go out and buy switchblades now, aren't you? <laughs> they're perfectly legal in Idaho, but they're illegal in the state of Washington. It's actually a misdemeanor. It, it, it's attended by a sanction and a fine. Um, when you cross the border at state line into Idaho, your hidden switchblade <laughs> becomes legal. And an Idaho state policeman will not write you a Washington ticket for your switchblade if you were a Washington resident. You're free of that regulation in the state of Idaho. It's not a law here. Another not quite so metaphorically accurate example would be the old Idaho law, and many of you who grew up here may remember this, it's the only question I failed on my driver's exam when I took it, because I, I remember reading and thinking, that's stupid, that wouldn't be in the book. In the books, 50 years ago, let's see, when I took, would have been like 1960, a long time ago, um, it was required that you honk before you pass someone. You remember that? I, I flunked, I, well I didn't flunk, I got like one out of the, all the questions. That's the one I missed. Nobody would require that. Yeah, that was a requirement back then. Yeah, yeah, it, you didn't get the flash of lights here. You honked. Nobody honked. I mean, from the time I drove, I was 13 when I started driving tractors and stuff. Nobody honked. Anyway, you could say that, and this is an important word, that law was fulfilled and thus you don't have to honk that those you are going to, pa to pass. It's still illegal, however, to sideswipe them as you go by them. <laughs> that moral responsibility never changed with the responsibility of honking being done away with. The ceremonial responsibility to notify the hapless person you were about to demonstrate your superior engine to, that person you didn't have to honk, you no longer have to honk at them. The ceremonial requirements no longer. And so, Israel, when she became the nation God would use to communicate his character to the world, she was given a series of ceremonial and judicial laws. Um, some of those judicial laws, while unique to Israel, only they were unique to Israel only. They still make sense today, and it's not a bad idea to observe them. But there's no sanction if you don't. One of them, for example, is the idea of not mixing um, certain clothing materials together. And it's, it was well known, the army did a bunch of research, when you mix wool and cotton, you reduce the wool's ability to, to wick sweat away from your body and keep you warm by a significant amount. Wool and cotton are a poor choice to mix together. Now, if you mix wool and cotton today together, you will not be killed for it. But you will probably be colder. You might, you might get electrified. Um, regarding the ceremonial law, we no longer offer the blood of bulls and and goats as a sacrifice for our sin because the once for all sacrifice of all time, the Lord Jesus Christ was given and he did away, it was done away with. It was nailed to the cross at Calvary. The judicial, ceremonial, and even the moral aspects of the law have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now they, the results, the ongoing results of the fulfillment is different in the three. The epistles clearly teach that we are no longer under the constraints of the judicial and ceremonial aspects of the law. The moral law, however, being an outgrowth of the character of God, is still binding. Murder was wrong in 2000 BC, and it is wrong today. It is important to note the distinction, though. When Christ came, he did not do away with the old covenant. He did not annul it. He fulfilled it. 
He finished it. He provided that needed responsibility that did away with the needed responsibility of observing the ceremonial and the judicial law. And there's a couple of other reasons for that. Uh, every aspect of the judicial requirements and the ceremonial responsibilities were done away with. The nation of Israel, no longer God's exclusive habitation on earth, was replaced with whosoever believes. Jesus, in fact, even fulfilled the moral law in that every single moral failure that believers have committed or will commit of those who are of the elect has paid for, has been, has been paid for at the cross. Agreed? Amen? All of them. Forever. The penalty for abrogating the moral law was done away with. It was nailed to the cross. We are no longer under the penalty of the sin, of sin. When the Messiah was nailed to the cross, that was the final rejection by Israel of him. This ended the dealing by God with Israel as, as, as a unique as his nation in that time. The church is who God is dealing with today, and the church is comprised of men and women from every tribe and nation on earth. Some of the New Testament actually had to be written to convince especially the Jewish apostles to accept the Gentiles, to actually consider that Gentiles could be part of the elect. Peter was told to kill and eat things that he would never have eaten before the cross. Relationships with Gentiles were unheard of before, and now they were not only sanctioned, but they were blessed. They were encouraged. And so Christ fulfilled the judicial system because of the rejection of the Messiah by Israel being fulfilled on the cross. He fulfilled the ceremonial law by the once-for-all sacrifice of himself, ending the need to sacrifice the blood of bulls and goats. Hebrews talks about this in a unique and remarkable way. He fulfilled the moral law by paying the penalty that comes when it is disobeyed. It should be noted also that he fulfilled the moral law by totally keeping the law of God. He did what we cannot do, and he gave us the benefit of his doing that by sacrificing himself on the cross. Further, upon becoming a Christian, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit who alone is able to, by the work of sanctification in our lives, enable us to obey God. Mark chapter 15, verse 38, <clears throat> um, tells us that the veil of the temple was torn from the top to bottom. Access was given. The ceremonial law was over. Colossians 2.16 reminds us that we are, not to, we are not to let anyone judge us in food, or drink, or respect to feast days or Sabbath days. The ceremonial law is indeed over. No more sanctions would occur if you muzzled your ox when they were threshing out wheat. The judicial law had come to an end. It's still a good idea to let them eat, though. Ever seen a skinny ox work hard? Probably not. Probably none of us have seen oxes do that in the first place. So, But you understand what I'm saying. Finally, Based on many of the studies we have been doing over the last few years in Colossians, Galatians, and now in 1 Corinthians, I started to put together a list of um, uh, principles, and I stumbled across one on, uh, uh, at, that John MacArthur has put up, and so I'm going to share that with you this morning, wondering how to decide whether or not you can eat oysters. Number one, these are the principles that you should use when making a decision about something that isn't interdicted by God's moral law, the obvious things that are lined out in Scripture. Number one, will this be spiritually profitable? Will what I am going to do, uh, will this enhance my spiritual life? Will it draw me closer to Christ and make me more serviceable, usable, a blessing to other people? First, uh, 1 Corinthians 6.12, 
Remember, Paul said this, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Will this be spiritual, spiritually profitable? That is the word enhance. Number two, will this build me up? Will what I'm about to do, will what I'm considering to do, build me up? The word is edify. First Corinthians 10, 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Will this make me more mature, more stable, more effective, more disciplined, this thing that I'm about to do? Number three, will it slow me down in the race I am running? The word to remember is excess. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. Will this activity or thing I'm going to do, will it add unnecessary weight or bulk to my life, slowing me down in the race I am running for Christ? Does it divert me or focus me on my work for the Lord Jesus Christ? Number three, will it bring me into bondage? Principle of enslavement. First Corinthians 6.12 again. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Is this something that might cause me to stumble? Does it have the potential to make me its slave? And for all of us, we know what those things are. For me, it's Lay's potato chips and peanut M&Ms. Why did they make those? Why do they put them at the checkout stand? It's a communist plot. That's what it is. I'm joking, but we all know what those things are. And God will reveal them to us as we go through our lives the things that will slow us down, that will stop us. They may be fine for somebody else, but they're not for me. And you know what those are. Numbers five, equivocation. Will it hypocritically cover my sin? First Peter 2.16. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Does an honest assessment of this activity indicate that it is something that will truly benefit me spiritually, or do I really have an evil desire that I am trying to fulfill by doing it? Wrong movies come to mind as I'm thinking about that. You know, that's for me. Wrong movies come to mind. Um, an example would be, go, be being free to go to certain movies because of my freedom in Christ, but knowing that what I might see is something I should not, not see. Motive is key to the principle of equivocation. Number six, will it violate the lordship of Christ in my life? Is it going to encroach on the lordship of Christ? The word is encroaching. Romans chapter 14, one through three. Now, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Whenever we read Romans 1, 14, 1, we apply it to other people. Well, I don't want to. We need to apply it to ourselves as well. That's what the advocation is here. The, the, the encouragement is here. Am I doing things that violate my conscience? Is it a choice that I believe is the will of God in my life? Again, this is relating to things not necessarily clearly outlined in Scripture, but matters of choice. 
Is this something that violates my conscience? Remember, we've been going through that section in 1 Corinthians where certain Corinthians could go into the temple and eat the idol meat there, and it didn't bother them because they knew it was an idol. They knew it was nothing. But it would, it would violate the conscience of a weaker Christian to do that. That weaker Christian needs to not do it until he has come to a place in his life where he has been taught by those who have the ability to teach him that his freedom in Christ allows him to do some things that he didn't think he could do, as long as they're not a moral issue. Number seven, will I be helping other Christians by my example? And the, the word is example. First Corinthians 8, 9, but take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Does this activity or choice build my brothers and sisters up? Or does it have the potential to tear them down? Could it be offensive to some? Am I aware that I am being watched all the time? And then the story was told of the man who was on the airplane. And he was a Christian, a well-known Christian. And the, the stewardess came up and asked him if he would like those, what are the, the little bottles of uh, like vodka or, or champagne or something? I don't know what's in them. I've never had one. Little bottles of vodka. That's the technical term. Thank you, Thomas. In Latin, that is... No, I'm just kidding. And he, he, um, he actually considered it, and then he said, no, no, thank you. I'll pass. So it, and it turned out that there was a guy watching him who needed counseling and was, felt free to come up and, and get some counseling from the fellow who was a well-known uh, Bible teacher. Uh, and it reminded him that we are being watched all the time. All the time. Number eight, will it lead others to Christ? Will what I am doing, does it have the potential to lead others to Christ? 1 Corinthians 10, 27 through 29. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake, but if anyone says to you, this meat is sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. I mean not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? Why would... Why should my actions be likely to attract, should my actions, would my actions, excuse me, would my actions be likely to attract others to Christ? Let's think about that. As Paul was presenting that to us, I think it was last week or the week before. An unbeliever at the table says that, well, this meat was offered to idols, and you choose not to eat it because your weaker Christian friend would be offended. That unbeliever would see, oh, how they love one another. That is one of, the, that is one of the, uh, the key things that can be an evangelistic, unknown evangelistic tool in the world when, when unbelievers see how we t treat one another because we love one another, even in situations where we would be asked to do something that would be perfectly fine, and we know it, but we won't do it because it might, it might offend a weaker brother. Of the two people at that table, the unbeliever and the believer, God is clearly saying, the most important person is the believer, the weak believer. You strong Christian, don't do anything that would offend him. Would my example lead others to Christ? And the way I treat my, friend, my brothers and sisters in Christ is a strong evangelistic tool, and often we do it without even thinking about it. Number nine, will it be consistent with Christ's likeness? Put it another way, and you've heard this saying all over the place, what would Jesus do? You know, just because that's been parodied and, and made into, in some places, almost a, a pariah of a statement, it's a good statement. What would Jesus do? And we have the scriptures to tell us what Jesus would do. Not, 
some song or some book written by somebody who doesn't know anything about the scriptures, but the scriptures. Number uh, First John, First John, two six. The one who says he abides in him ought also ought himself to walk in the same manner as he, Jesus, walked. Is this something I can honestly say Jesus would do or say? I have actually used that. Have any of you, how many of you have read the book, What Would Jesus Do? It's actually a pretty good read. It's an interesting read. It's, I think at one time it was the second most widely read book on the planet, if I remember right, second to the Bible. It was many, many years ago. Number 10, will it glorify God? Exaltation. First Corinthians 10.31, which we will probably get to today. Whether you eat, whether then, you eat, you drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. What Will what I am doing, or what I'm going to say, will it honor God, will it exalt Him, will it glorify Him? And I want to just close with that verse that we started with, 1 Corinthians 6.12. All things are lawful for me. Yeah. So when you're making the decision as to what to eat, it's fine. Probably um, make sure you're not eating shellfish that has mercury in it. I think that would be a good idea. So use discernment, but there is no problem with eating those kinds of things. Unless there's someone at your table who maybe it would violate their conscience. Probably not going to happen in this body, but it can happen. Those are the things that we need to keep in mind. So this list of things you could use as a kind of a, a template, a reminder. What, am I, what I'm about to do, will it, will it, just really quickly, I'll go through them one more time. Number one, will it, is it spiritually profitable? Will it build me up? Will it slow me down in the race I'm running? Will it bring me into bondage? Will it hypocritically cover my sin? Am I using it to do something that I know I shouldn't be doing? Will it violate the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ in my life? Will it be helping other Christians by my example? Will it lead others to Christ? Will it be consistent with Christ's likeness? And will it glorify God? 1 Corinthians 6, 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. So, is that helpful? Is there any questions? And if you want that list, I can send it to you. It's a nice little bulleted Microsoft Word list. Or did I just do an unintentional advertisement for Microsoft? Okay, I've got to remember where we ended. Chapter 10. We finished chapter... Oh, no, we didn't quite finish chapter 10. So... I broke your clock. Um, let's read chapter 10. We're going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 10 from 23 to the end of the chapter. And we will, we will be able to finish this chapter today, maybe even get to chapter 11 a little bit. Chapter 10, verse 23. Reminding ourselves again, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you wish to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone should say to you, um, this meat is sacrificed to idols, do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. 
I mean not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I gave thanks? Whether then, verse 31, you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, that they may be saved. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It's, it's such a, a simple statement, but so important. Again, for the, the reasons I mentioned earlier and for the reason that, that our love for the Lord Jesus Christ should constrain us by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to obey Him, to do things that, that honor Him. And so Paul is saying that includes eating and drinking. And part of the reason he's saying that is because of what we've just been covering, the eating of meat offered to, to demons, offered to idols. Whatever you're going to do, he says, do it as though you were giving and do it to give glory to God. So verse 32 follows right on the heels of that. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or the church of God. We're not to cause anyone to stumble intentionally. So now, does that mean we can never play, a, we can never indulge in a playful prank? You can answer that. No. <laughs> yeah. no, that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about, you know, I, I'm a simple-minded guy. The things that come to mind to me are very simple. Like, I know somebody doesn't eat pork, and we're going to have them for dinner. I'm not going to serve pork chops. I'm going to serve something else. It's not even going to come up in the discussion unless they bring it up. Cause no one else to stumble. Cause no one else an offense. <clears throat> and, then he, and then he lists who? Believers, he says, either to Jews or to Greeks, but especially the church of God. And should we discover that some of the things that we have been doing unintentionally are causing others to stumble or offending them, we should modify that behavior. We should stop doing it. Stop, S-T-A-H-P, stop. Whether it is unfortunate or fortunate, our actions can either bring reproach or glory to God himself. <clears throat> we will often hear unbelievers say that they do not believe in God because of the way his followers act. Of course, that is a foolish benchmark to use, but nevertheless, it does happen, and we've all seen examples of that. Paul is encouraging the Corinthians, and by extension, us, to choose not to offend people. Don't offend people. Just don't do it. Don't, don't intentionally harm relationships and offending people. Our lives should be exemplary, and we should be considerate to all, Jews and Greeks. And so to put this in the modern context... It doesn't matter who they are, whether they're believers or unbelievers. We should be, we should be considerate to all. <clears throat> um, our lives should be exemplary and we should be considerate to all. Of course, we are to attend first to the needs of the church. Galatians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Let us not lose heart in doing good. Have any of you ever almost lost heart in doing good? And you don't have to raise your hands. I know many of you in here probably. It just seems like, you know, no good deed goes unpunished sometimes. And nice guys always finish last. Those are not those are those are uh, cultural aphorisms, and they're not true. Because God writes the last chapter in all of our lives. <clears throat> so in Galatians chapter six, verses nine and ten, it says, "Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary." So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Take care of our own first. Take good care of our own first. 
But in the end, our behavior, our everyday behavior, our everyday behavior should bring glory to God. It should bring glory to God. Any comments about verse 32? Yes. I think I know the answer. But... Jesus. <laughs> okay, so where does political correctness come in here? It's stupid. <laughs> Next question. It's how you dispense with political correctness. So when someone is spouting off socialism and you, you say, even an idiot understands that socialism won't work. It works reasonably well in some families, but it doesn't work in the world. Please don't export it. That's pretty offensive, the way I just said that. So that means that we are people like the times that David had men who understood the, the, the times that they were living in. What that meant was that they studied what was going on and what the good, correct answers to the misunderstandings of the day were. And then they learned to put those in words. Now I'm, now, now I'm speculating. They, they would learn to put those, thing, those concepts into digestible but kind words. Now there's time for sarcasm. I mean, anybody think there's no sarcasm in the Bible? Okay, I'm, I'm thinking about this situation where um, a whole bunch of prophets of God were convincing, trying to convince Elijah that their God was better than Jehovah. And so they, they worshipped and they screamed and they yelled and they did all these things. And Elijah went, shout louder, maybe he's on vacation. <laughs> and so then they cut themselves and the blood was flowing. He said, a little louder, please. He might be going to the bathroom. That's in the text. The point is, sarcasm's fine. It's just a dangerous tool. It's kind of like using a hammer to fix glass. So know your limitations, know what's necessary, and understand the concepts of the day so that you can dispense with political correctness in as kind a way as you possibly can. And often you'll find that doesn't work because people are often committed to those wrong ideas because of a worldview. That's the other thing we don't get. We think sometimes if we could just give someone a nice, little, a nice little paragraph of explanation, it would change their minds. No, their whole world. People don't have wrong ideas. That just want, They have all good ideas and one wrong idea. It's a package. It's a package deal because the wrong ideas are supporting, supportive of each other. Yes? Going back to what you he did do that. He also had straight up answers. You do not understand because you, you err because you misunderstand the scriptures. I remember him saying, well, we got a guy who's married and he dies and then his wife marries his brother and then he dies and then his wife marries. That's the strangest thing. I, I mean, don't get trapped in hypotheticals, by the way, because usually they're just made up like that was probably made up. At any rate, Jesus said, you do err. You don't understand the scriptures. So there's two good ways. Depends on who you're dealing with. Are you dealing with a believer or an unbeliever? You've got to understand the, the, the conversation that you're having. Uh, and it also implies that you have a, a really good understanding of the concept yourself so you can ask incisive questions that may prod the person to think about it. That's a good way to do it. But political correctness itself, no, we, we, need, to, we need to kindly, lovingly, politely confront it. Because political correctness of 50 years ago is way different than what's happening today. And that's because it wasn't properly confronted and dealt with. And so it's morphed into putting lifestyles before us that destroy the people that live them. We need to stand against those things. Any other questions? Yes? 
Yeah. How about that Venezuela? Yeah. So do you want to move to Caracas? You know. Okay, verse 33. Paul says, Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, will this edify, will it build up others, will it strengthen others, is it a good example? But the profit of many, so that they may be saved. That's the focus. We need to deal with political correctness. We need to deal with wrong concepts about government. But the most important thing is that men's hearts are changed and that they trust the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. In every way that could possibly be done in a biblical manner, Paul did everything he could to please all those he came into contact with in a biblical manner. He voluntarily subjugated his own good to the good of others for the purpose that they might be saved, whether saved from sin and ushered into the kingdom of God or saved from false doctrine and made more wholesome in a biblical sense. He did not encourage error or stray from any biblical doctrine, but he did look for every way possible to bring advantage into the lives of others. <clears throat> All of the apostles were careful to protect the church from false doctrine and paganism, and they did so in a manner that elevated liberty and yet honored solid biblical doctrine to avoid political correctness. They did not try to adapt adopt pagan feasts in order to make Christianity more palatable to the populace. In his commentary, Charles Hodge gives a fairly good list of the methodology of the apostles, and I'd like to just quickly go to that. Um, give me just a second. got to find it. Don't you love technology when it works well? Sure you do. So do I. Give me just a second. We'll go to slide 294. He's really got that many slides. Yeah, he's weird. Charles Hodge has a pretty good set of what you might call apostolic principles. Number one, they accommodated themselves to Jewish or Gentile usages only in matters of indifference, in matters that had no biblical significance, true um, moral significance, let me put it that way. They abstained from all accommodation, even in things indifferent under circumstances which gave to those things a religious import. They allowed sacrifices to be eaten, but eating within a temple was forbidden. Paul said, you'll be damaging people's conscience. Don't eat in the temple. Go buy it in the meat market and don't ask questions. They conceded when the concession was not demanded as a matter of necessity, but refused when it was so regarded. Paul said circumcision was nothing and uncircumcision was nothing. Yet, he resisted the circumcision of Titus because it was demanded by the Judaizers. Do you understand the distinction there? He circumcised Timothy, but it wasn't being demanded. It was an opportunity to open up, to expand Timothy's reach. But they were demanding people need to be circumcised to be saved. Paul said it ain't happening. Not to this man. Not happening. Number four. The object of their concessions was not to gain their nominal converts, nor to do away with the offense of the cross, but to save men. No concession, therefore, whether to the manners of the world or to the prejudices of the ignorant, can plead the sanction of apostolic example, which has not that object honestly in view. The apostles would not sanction or remove responsibilities um, when, they were, when they would damage the ability to save men, to give the gospel to give the clear biblical gospel to men. And number five, it is included in the above particulars that Paul, in becoming all things to all men, never compromised any truth or sanctioned any error. He did not violate what God had taught. He accommodated himself by not doing things that would offend others so that he could win all men, if possible. But he would never 
He would never compromise biblical principles. It is unfortunate, finishing this up, that verse 1 of chapter 11 was not included in chapter 10 because it gives the thought, the false impression that a new thought is coming. Most commentators agree that verse 1 of chapter 11 completes the thought Paul started in verse 33 of chapter 10. It is not that Paul was a man pleaser, so we're going to read that. Chapter 11, verse 1, be imitators of me. Let me finish 33. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but for the pro- but the profit of the many, that they may be saved, be imitators of me, just as I am of Christ. I also am of Christ. It's not that he was a man pleaser. In fact, he explicitly states that he is not seeking his own, but the good of many, the many for salvation. And this he did because he was a follower of Christ. And so he, had, he could encourage others to follow him because he imitated the Lord. That's a sobering and frightening thought that each one of us believers should be able to tell other people, imitate me. I get, I get kind of sick to my stomach thinking about people imitating me often. It's scary. Um, our behavior, and that's why our behavior as we are sanctified it should be our daily behavior should glorify God. We should actually be able to tell other people to be imitators of us. I'm going to be careful with that one. So to recap chapter 10, Paul warned the Corinthians from the history of Israel not to be arrogant, not to be proud, especially of their supposed knowledge and superior spiritual authority. Superior, supposed spiritual superiority. Thank you. He reminded them that no one is exempt from the sin of pride and that it will lead to many other problems. Pride is a root of many evils, many evils. He spent quite a bit of time delineating the problem with the idol feasts. It is not the meat nor the food, but the association and the purpose of those feasts that put a Christian in jeopardy when they participated in them. He again encouraged the Corinthians to seek the good of others and not just themselves. Just because everything is permissible, permissible, he cautions, he tells the Corinthians to recognize that not everything is beneficial. Just because you can doesn't mean you need to. Just because everything is permissible, not everything will build up. Just because everything is permissible, not everything will contribute to the good of others. Several times in this chapter, Paul refers to this concept. He then gives them some practical advice about how to deal with meat that is for sale at the local grocery market, the, the local market. Um, that may have been part of an idol worship celebration. Do not ask too many questions. Buy it and eat it. This is good advice for many of the things that we deal with in everyday life. Do not avoid questions that will prevent you from sinning, but do avoid questions that serve no useful purpose except to create an argument and difficulty. He closes the chapter with the admonition to do everything for the glory of God, Be careful not to intentionally cause others to stumble and learn to imitate the Lord Jesus Christ in doing the most good to the most people all the time. That's a high calling. That's a very high calling, and he's calling the Corinthian church to do that. And by extension, he is calling us to do that, to do the most good to the most people all the time. Without the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, it is simply not possible. It isn't going to happen. But with the Holy Spirit in the lives of the believers, unbelievable things are possible. And I think you've all seen that happen. So as we close today, let's be reminded that 
we are to be imitators of Christ, so much so that others could imitate us. Thomas. How we deliver, how we refuse to change the things in our lives that have been known to be offensive. Um, Paul was offensive. To the Gal- read the book of Galatians. Look what he said to the Judaizers. He said some really strong things to the Judaizers. The Lord Jesus Christ was offensive to the Pharisees and to many others. He, didn't, he, he called a spade a spade as necessary. But the point, as Thomas has mentioned here, isn't that we need to recognize that the scripture will, the truth will offend people. They will be offended when you confront them by simply giving them the un, uh, the unvarnished truth of the scripture that God has made the decision about how our lives should be lived. And sin and many of the lifestyles of people who live in today, you, you really can't look up in a thesaurus and come up with a better word for it than the word sin. It is a sinful lifestyle. It's a wicked lifestyle. It's a destructive lifestyle. Let the scripture call those shots and let us be the deliverers of that scripture in a way that glorifies God. So let's pray. Father, we're grateful that you have made the word everything it needs to be. You have made it a comfort. You have made it a blessing. You have made it a divider. You have made it a surgical instrument that gets right down to the marrow of the matter, as it says in Hebrews. And you have made it a blessing to your people who might be able to, from it, find out how obedience through the Holy Spirit will bring glory to you in our everyday lives. And that's what we want to do. We want to be those who are about the business of delivering the truth, but loving you and loving one another in a manner that will bring people into the kingdom. And we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.